What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Aura Ogunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In Germany, there's been a string of people being cancelled. The plug pulled on their shows or grants or awards. Why? Because those people, quite a few of whom happen to be Jewish, have said their country goes too far in defending Israel. And you might consider yourself an avid reader, but have you ever sat down to think about how many books you could read in your lifetime? Our correspondent has done the maths so that you don't have to. First up, though. From the lush rainforests on the island of Borneo to the bustling streets of Jakarta, Indonesia is the biggest island country. Well, islands country. It's made up of more than 14,000 of them. And all of those islanders will head to the polls one week from today in an act of democracy that's still taking root in the country. Colonized, invaded, occupied for centuries, Indonesia was ruled for three decades by a dictator named Suharto, who restricted civil liberties and squashed any political opposition. That is, until 1998, when enormous student-led protests forced Suharto to step down. The current president, Joko Widodo, who everybody calls Jokowi, is stepping down after reaching his term limit. His most probable successor could once again change the course of democracy. Indonesia is the world's third largest democracy, and it's a really young, enthusiastic one. Su Lin Wong is a Southeast Asia correspondent for The Economist. I've been really struck on the campaign trail at just how much people are excited to get out there and vote. There are posters and billboards lining the streets of cities and towns and villages across the country, even though there have been all kinds of machinations at an elite level and a lot of concerns about democratic decline in Indonesia. And so just by way of reminder, who are the runners and riders of note here in this election? Well, last week on the show, we spoke about how TikTok is really influencing young voters this election, particularly in favour of the leading candidate, Prabowo Subianto. Now, he's a very, very wealthy 72-year-old who served as a special forces commander under the former dictator Suharto, who also happened to be his once father-in-law. Mr. Prabowo has been accused of 
committing atrocities in Timor-Leste in the 1980s, and also in the late 1990s, he was accused of ordering the kidnapping of more than 20 democracy activists, of whom 13 remain missing. And to be clear, Mr Prabo himself denies any wrongdoing. But it's not just his very controversial human rights record that is of concern. He has said all kinds of things calling into question his democratic beliefs. He's previously spoken about abolishing presidential term limits and he's joked about how the country needs a half-authoritarian leader. And, you know, in the past two elections, he ran against the current president and lost and he accused the Electoral Commission of stealing the vote. He incited his supporters to protest. In 2019, eight people died from the violence of these protests. But Mr Prabot has also been able to rebrand himself multiple times over the decades. And in 2019, Jokowi, the current president, brought him into his cabinet as his defence minister. And now Mr Prabot is running with Jokowi's son as his vice president and has rebranded himself as this cuddly, cat-loving grandpa, albeit one with a very strong nationalist message. Okay, and who else is on the ballot? The next most significant candidate is Anis Baswedan. He's coming second in the polls right now. He's 54 years old, is a former university rector and was a previous education minister as well as governor of Jakarta. He's from a family of Muslim political activists and he got his PhD in America. He's considered very eloquent and clever. His policy platform this campaign is considered miles ahead of the other candidates. Now, the one big black mark on his name was that when he was campaigning for governor of Jakarta in 2017, he was perceived to have really embraced a very ugly form of identity politics when he was running against an ethnic Chinese Christian incumbent. I actually tagged along with him recently on his campaign trail. I put in interview requests with all three candidates, but only Mr Anis got back to me. So one thing Mr Anis is doing that is really quite different is that he has introduced this open forum where voters can show up and ask him impromptu questions. Some of them have been thematic with delivery couriers or fishermen or farmers. And Mr Anis was telling me that he himself has been challenged by a whole range of different kinds of questions that have been thrown at him. One one day I visited a province in Sumatra in that area the issue of uh, land ownership and entitlement is a big thing. And they were demanding clear commitment. How are you going to solve our problems in this area? Uh, to the issue of what are you going to do with marijuana? Are you going to legalize marijuana? You know, things like that. And, but this has... Okay, and who's left on the ballot then? The third candidate, Ganjar Pranoo, is polling last, which is a real turnaround from a year ago when many people thought he was going to be the next president of Indonesia. And the reason for that is he's considered similar to Jokowi, the current president. He's very polite, Javanese, humble, low-key, seen as sort of a man of the people. 
but he's run a very lacklustre campaign and he represents Indonesia's largest political party, PDIP, which is controlled by Megawati, a very powerful figure in Indonesian politics. He's sort of perceived as being Megawati's puppet and that has really hurt his campaign. So you've described the demeanour and the sort of perceptions. What about policies? How are they different in terms of platform? Well, Indonesian elections are notoriously won on personalities and not policies. And I'd have to say that this campaign is similar to previous ones in that it's been incredibly light on policy. But if we had to summarise the candidates, Mr Prabowo would be considered continuity because he has pledged to continue Jokowi's signature policies such as really ramping up Indonesia's industrial policy. He's also said he will relocate the capital city from Jakarta to the jungles of Borneo. Whereas Mr Anis has positioned himself as the candidate of change. He's been very outspoken about democratic backsliding in Indonesia under Jokowi and has said that if he becomes president, he will make sure that there's space for an opposition and no one will be afraid to speak critically about the president. And then the third candidate, Mr Ganjar, is sort of considered in between Mr Prabowo and Mr Anis. So if this election isn't really about those kinds of policy differences, though, that you describe, what is it about? What's really at stake here, do you think? I mean, the future of democracy in Indonesia is at stake here. When Jokowi won the presidency a decade ago, his victory was really hailed as a win for democracy, given he didn't come from a prominent political or military family and was a furniture maker who grew up in a village shack and really worked his way up through the political system. But unfortunately, over the past few years, Jokowi has really eroded many of Indonesia's democratic institutions, including the once independent anti-corruption commission. And he's facing mounting criticism that he's now using the levers of the state to control the outcome of this election. When I spoke to Mr Anis, he seemed certain that the outcome of this election was going to decide the direction of the country, particularly with regards to the state of Indonesia's democracy. Uh, we are at the, I think at a crossroad now, whether our democracy is going to continue consolidating or we will be seeing uh, backtracking. We have seen the past few years sign of deteriorations in terms of quality of a democracy. But we've spoken twice about this now, and it seems that Mr. Prabowo is, uh, well, streets ahead. Do you think there is a chance that either of the others could break through? I think it's going to be very difficult. At the moment, it really does look like Mr. Prabowo is going to win. And the big question is whether he wins in the first round of the election on February 14, where he gets more than 50% of the vote, or if the election goes to a runoff in late June. So Mr. Prabowo and Jokowi desperately want this to be a one-round election, whereas obviously the rival candidates very much want to see this go to a second round. Thanks very much for joining us, Sulin. Thanks very much, Jason. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where... Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise. 
where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem, where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. The streets of Berlin, like those of many cities, have been filled recently with anti-war protesters. Crowds standing in support of Palestinians and demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. And there's been plenty of protest against Israel's response to the attacks on October 7th. But giving voice to those sentiments can sit awkwardly given the country's history. Well, there have been dozens of cases of cancel culture in Germany in the past few months since the Gaza war started back in October. Max Rodenbeck is the Berlin bureau chief for The Economist. These are cases where people who have stood up in some kind of show of solidarity with Palestinians or people in Gaza, lots of different artists, performers, politicians, an Indian poet, Australian political scientist, Irish folk troupe, a Bangladeshi photographer, Dutch footballer, you get the idea. All of them have been subjected to cancel culture in Germany. Subjected to cancel culture in, in what sense? Well, they've had the plug pulled on whatever they were doing, a show, getting a grant from the government or some institution, a contract, an award, even meetings with public officials, all cancelled. And the explanation for that has varied from case to case. But they all seem to hang on a single kind of fear by whoever was organizing these things. And the fear is that these disinvited people, quite a few of whom, by the way, happen to be Jewish, might have said something that someone might see as anti-Semitic. One example from this is a South African artist whose name is Candice Brights, who lives in Berlin, in fact, and who also happens to be Jewish. She's a video artist, and she had a show that was scheduled for many months to start in a museum in Saarland in Western Germany. And this was cancelled at the last minute because of things that she said calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, for example. She's also condemned the Hamas attack on Israelis. But she was cancelled because someone thought that somehow she might stir anti-Semitism. And what has the, the wider response to these cancellations been? Well, it's put some fear into this artistic community in Germany. One person I spoke to is Al Weizmann, who is a British-Israeli leader of a group called Forensic Architecture. It's a research group that has probed anti-Semitic attacks in Germany, as well as Israeli human rights violations. And even before the Gaza crisis, Weizmann faced cancellation troubles of his own because of criticizing Israel in America as well as in Germany. But now he finds that many of his Jewish friends in Germany and also even professional associates have faced problems left and right after showing any support to Palestinians. And when I spoke to Weizmann, he said it's become so challenging to speak up on this issue in Germany because people seem to view any challenge to Israel as a kind of sin the same thing was expressed to me by Wieland Hoban, who's a Frankfurt-based composer, who's also a Jewish activist in Germany, who heads a group called Jewish Voices for Peace. And he said that to suggest that being told by the German establishment how to be Jews could itself be called anti-Semitic. So th this issue is clearly getting tied up in knots, but I suppose it's quite a sensitive one, particularly in Germany. Absolutely. There's a very special German context to all this, and it's particularly sensitive, of course, because this all begins with the Nazi regime's murder of six million Jews in World War II. 
But part of the German context is that one answer to the horror of the Holocaust was that subsequent generations of Germans embraced the creation of Israel. And decades ago, in the 1950s, Germany decided to offer war reparations not only to Holocaust survivors, to individuals, but also to the Jewish state, to Israel. And acknowledging the sins of the past became a new kind of self-effacing German national identity. And part of that was also viewing Israel as a kind of redemption for the German soul. And this took more concrete form under Angela Merkel, who was the chancellor from 2005 to 2021. She was in power for 16 years. But she cemented this special responsibility to Israel for Germans by stressing that its security is part of Germany's own reason of state, was the word that she used, Staatsraison, which is a kind of strange legal term. But it sort of makes Israel's security part of Germany's own security. And in 2019, the Bundestag, which is Germany's parliament, adopted a motion that equated calls to boycott Israel with anti-Semitism. Ironically, this motion adopted by the German parliament was instigated by the hard-right AFD party, a party that a lot of people view as fascist. But the other parties, when this idea of this motion was put forward, other parties all jumped on the bandwagon to show that they're no less vigilant on anti-Semitism than the AFD is. But what this did was to establish this conflation of criticizing Israel with anti-Semitism. And so the net result of that conflation then is as how we're seeing all these people being canceled, losing, in fact, state funds in some cases. Exactly. Yeah, it's become kind of entrenched in policymaking. And then, you know, subsequently, the government has appointed what they call anti-Semitism commissioners at all levels of government, including states and federal. And their task is to apply these very broad definitions of what anti-Semitism is. Germany is a very state-heavy country, so any organization that relies on state funding have found themselves increasingly scrutinized for anything that might be interpreted as anti-Semitic. And that's led to a fear of budget cuts or public ostracism. A cultural center in Berlin called Oyun had its funding cut in November after it hosted a pro-peace Jewish NGO that one culture commissioner on the Berlin city government suggested that they might be encouraging what he called hidden forms of anti-Semitism. But with what's been going on in, in Gaza and, and what seem like some contradictions here in, in, in the notion surely are kind of shaking it somewhat among the people. Well, absolutely. The attacks of October 7th were the bloodiest in Israeli history, and they were very heavily covered in Germany, and there was a huge outpouring of German sympathy for the Israelis. But now the horror of what's going on in Gaza has kind of exposed the awkwardness of how one-sided Germany's embrace of Israel has been. This hasn't affected government policy, but it's beginning to filter into the public. A public opinion survey showed that 61% of the German public believes Israel is going too far in Gaza. So it's probably a matter of time before this filters up into government policy, but it hasn't happened yet. Max, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. Choosing your next book can be a pretty daunting task. Lizzie Peet is a researcher at The Economist, based in New York. Do you go with one that will broaden your worldview and pique your imagination? Maybe a neglected classic or the newest sensation? The choice is all the more daunting when you consider how much reading time you actually have left in your life, which is a pretty morbid calculation and one that I know stresses out a lot of bookworms. But we decided to give it a go. Our back-of-the-envelope calculations show how many books you can still hope to read and how to make time for the best ones. 
Yeah, until you just said it, I had never thought about how much reading time I have left in my life. Lizzie, what does your survey show? Sorry to stress you out, but fundamentally, the number of books you read depends on how much time you're obviously able to devote to them. Some people can't manage any reading time at all. They obviously have hectic lives. We asked 1,500 Americans about their reading habits and only 54% had read or listened to a book in the previous year. And what did you discover about the reading habits of those who had read at least one book? So the average they'd read was about 11 books a year, which is pretty good. 4% said that they read a book a week, which is pretty impressive. But then even the most voracious reader would probably struggle to get through the sheer amount of books that have been printed. So the best estimates are that 160 million have been published since the printing press arrived in the 15th century. So even the 4% who say they read a book a week would struggle to get through more than about 0.003% of the total, which is pretty alarming. But then again, you have to remember something called Sturgeon's Law, which was coined by a science fiction author, that 90% of everything is crap. And there are some really, truly dreadful books out there. So if you start young, you should still have plenty of time to get through a lot of brilliant books. You know what? I kind of agree with that. I shouldn't be wasting my time on bad books. So Lizzie, how do I make sure that I'm choosing books that are actually worth reading in the leftover reading time I have in my life? That's a great question. So we basically scraped a list of critically acclaimed books from the internet. And then we used a website called howlongtoread.com to create a rough estimate of how long it would take to get through the 900 books that we had data on. And what did you find? So if you read 11 books a year, it would take you 84 years to finish our list. Now, most Americans say they read for about 15 minutes a day, in which case it would take them 102 years, possibly unachievable, but you never know. If you read for half an hour every day, it would take you 51 years. And if you manage to read for a whole hour every day, it would take even less time. So a young reader could start reading The World of Peter Rabbit, for example, by Beatrix Potter in a couple of days and end with a 92-day slog through War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy before they're 60. And if those currently reading nothing took up reading in retirement, they'd probably get through about a third of the list. Lizzie, War and Peace is just not really my vibe. In fact, I'm sure there's actually quite a few critically acclaimed books on that list that I wouldn't love. Yeah, completely fair enough. And the list is by no means definitive. It would be a lot smaller if you take into account personal preference, which is obviously very important. So, for example, if you're not really into psychological horror, you might want to give Silence of the Lambs a miss, which is currently on the list. If medieval literature isn't your thing, you could save 39 days of your life by not reading The Saga of the Icelanders, a fairly obscure tome. And most importantly, perhaps, if you're not enjoying a book, you should put it down. John Irving, an American novelist, once said that grown-ups shouldn't finish books they're not enjoying. So put it down and pick something else up. Life is too short. I completely agree. Lizzie, before we go, what is one book you would recommend that I read in my remaining lifetime? Gosh, that is a very hard question. Off the top of my head, I actually went to California in the summer and I realised that I somehow got to fairly ripe age without reading John Steinbeck. So I picked up East of Eden, which I just thought was a brilliant, epic novel about the California dream. Um, if you're looking for something a bit more recent, maybe some Daphne du Maurier, Rebecca or my cousin Rachel. And I actually have just finished reading Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver, which came out fairly recently, which I also thought was brilliant. Oh, yeah, she wrote The Poisoned Bible. Yes, exactly. Lizzie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me.
that's all for this episode of The Intelligence, but I'm contractually obliged to remind you about just how very much more of this sweet, sweet economist podcast wisdom you could be getting for cheap. Just for this month, you can get a subscription to Economist Podcasts Plus for half off, like a couple of bucks a month, if you sign up to an annual or two-year subscription. You'll get access to all of our specialist weekly shows on China, business and finance, science and tech, American politics, plus plenty more stuff we're cooking up. Follow the link in the show notes or just search Economist Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the EU, Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalize and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at idaireland.com. Invest in extraordinary.